All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in it to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And uh, the title for today's sermon is Hope, Help, Hope for the Helpless. And the thesis statement that I want to put before you is that uh, Yahweh gives hope to the helpless. And what, what we're going to look at here today in, in chapter 13 is there's really the beginning of a new uh, literary unit, as it were, for those of you who care about such things. Um, and there's a significant shift in the life of Israel where Saul has been anointed king, Saul has been proclaimed as king, um, Samuel has kind of led this transition from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy. And here in chapter 13, we're really coming to the beginning of the end of Saul. We've gone through all this stuff to get to this point. He's now the king, but now we're going to see this kind of slow, inexorable decline of Saul to, from the kingship. And at the same time, in God's providence and, and plan, we're going to see this slow, inexorable rise of King David, the man after God's own heart. And so all this good stuff has happened. Um, all this great stuff is happening. But at this point, there's really the beginning of the end and some, some darkness is about to descend upon the people of Israel. And then I also want to give you a point of kind of textual information. Um, chapters 13 and 14 are one literary unit, and then 15 is in addition to that. But I'm, we're stopping specifically at 13, and it's very specifically a, a little bit of a cliffhanger. So just know that like it might not make sense in terms of the narrative that we're stopping there, but that's on purpose, um, even if all the commentators didn't do it this way. One did, and I felt justified in following his lead. So um, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we're going to get to work. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word. First Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and uh, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. 
For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to the Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him, with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, in Michmash, and raiders came up out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shual, another company toward Beth Haron, another company turned toward the border that looks down in the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for the setting of the goads. So on that day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of Saul with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that in this world there is hope mixed with fear. There is rejoicing mixed with weeping. There is gladness mixed with sadness. And Father, we see that here in your word. We know that in our lives. Father, help us to hope in you because you are the one who is worthy of all hope. You are the one who is powerful enough to enact your covenant promises. And you are the one who is good enough, glorious enough to worship and to save your people. We know that in your word you promise us that you will deliver us from all our enemies. Lord, we know that Upon the cross, you defeated that greatest enemy of death. So help us as we read these verses and read of the darkness of the situation of the people of God. We ourselves would be reminded of the darkness in and around us, but rejoice in the hope that we have in you. Because even though we are helpless to overcome the darkness on our own, Lord, you have shown your light of the world, your son Jesus, into the darkness of our hearts and the darkness of this world to raise us up from the pit to set our feet on solid ground, and to save your people for your great namesake. Father, help us to hear this word by the power of your Spirit. Help us to know that it's your word. Help us to be comforted and convicted and conformed more to the image of your Son, Jesus, all through the power of your Spirit, with which none of this is possible. Lord, we love you, and we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. I've never been to a castle but I've seen pictures of them, and I think that they're very beautiful. Uh, they're a glorious representation of the, the fact that humankind is capable of building great and glorious and beautiful things, capable of wonderful technological uh, advancements. But it, it is true, though, within the castle, within this beautiful architectural example of human ingenuity, there were also incredible pictures of the capacity for humans to inflict pain upon each other. In many castles throughout the, the medieval times, there was a certain thing that, that enemies uh, who had been brought into the castle would tend to fear more than anything else. And it was this thing called the oubliette. And if you speak French, I'm sorry for what I just said. Um, but the oubliette was this, was this dungeon within the dungeon, as it were. 
It was a hole in the ground and a long, deep, dark shaft, often filled with the remains of other humans that had been put down there. And a prisoner would be lowered by rope or by chain to the very bottom of this tight shaft, so tight that they couldn't even move once they got down there, maybe standing on the remains of another human. And the only visitor they would have would be the rats that would come to nibble on that whatever they could find down there. And then they would close the lid to the oubliettes and there would be total and absolute darkness where they were helpless to do anything but to sit and to wait in the smelly, cold, damp, deep oubliette beneath the castle. The picture that we're going to see here in this chapter is the fact that mankind is capable of great things. God's people are capable of great good things. But at the same time, the same time of that greatness, we're going to watch this slow descent into darkness. And we're going to ask the question, how is Yahweh going to deliver his people from this darkness? How is Yahweh going to bring his king, a man after his own heart, out of this conflict? And we're going to see that God gives us so many reasons to have hope even in the midst of this darkness because Yahweh is a God who gives hope to the helpless. Let's look first at verse 1 through 7 and we're going to see this flicker of hope um, in the narrative. Saul begins his reign in verse 1. There's this very standard way of introducing a king in the Old Testament and as he began his reign, he acted just as kings were wont to do. We looked back at when Samuel was warning against the king, and, and we learned from that, that that the king was going to take and take and take and take men and, and form a standing army to fight the battles of the nation. And that's just what Saul does here at the beginning of this chapter. He does what kings do, and he takes 3,000 chosen, selected, specific men, and he takes 2,000 of them for himself and gives 1,000 to his son, Jonathan. And then in verse 3, we see this really good news. Jonathan takes his 1,000 men and he defeats a garrison of the Philistines, that great enemy of God's people. And they're routed and they're destroyed and there is great rejoicing. This is a good thing. The enemies of God's people are defeated by the people of God. Yet, this good thing should be questioned somewhat because the king was supposed to be the one that went out and fought the battles of God's people. The king was the one that the people wanted to defend them against Nahash the Ammonite. The king was the one charged with leading his people. But here it is the king's son doing the work. Now, I'll be honest, I don't precisely know if this is simply because Saul commanded it or, or Jonathan is doing something on his own. We don't quite know. But what we do know is that at some level, there's a good thing here that needs to be questioned somewhat. But when we look at what the author says, we see that Saul, to some degree, rightly or wrongly, takes credit for this. And he blows the trumpet and announces to all Israel, the Philistines have been defeated, the Philistines have been defeated, But in that same moment, that same good thing of God's people defeating the enemies of God's people, another kind of bad thing is mixed in there, and that the Israelites became a stench to the Philistines. I'm going to pause here, and kids, I'm going to ask you a very important question. What's something that you think is smelly? Yeah, daddy, no doubt. Uh, Yeah, um, Aaron. Stinky cheese? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Piper. Feet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Some, yeah. Uh, Leo. Dirty socks, for sure. Now, when you're around 
uh, daddy or stinky cheese or, you know, feet or socks. When, when you come into the presence of something stinky, you're immediately aware of it. You're like, oh, something is here that I'm aware of. And, and usually you don't want to let it just stay there. You don't want to let it just sit and fester. You want to do something about it. And so here in 1 Samuel 13, Israelites have become a stench to the Philistines. And that's bad news, not because they have stinky feet or cheese. That's because the Philistines know that Israel did something and they are going to enact revenge. And so Saul, when he blows that trumpet, that's not just an announcement of their victory. That's also a call to arms. Because the Philistines know what happened and God's people need to muster themselves to follow Saul and battle is going to ensue. And so what became a glimmer of hope that the people of God defeated the enemies of God was soon drowned in a sea of fear because the author says here that the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They have 10 times the number of troops. And this hope that Israel is about to have or had is about to be drowned in the sea of the enemies of God's people. What hope is there to have? You see, Saul remains there at Gilgal, but the picture is the people of God are scattering. They are going and they are hiding in the deepest, darkest crevices that they can find to get away from the terrifying enemy of God's people who has mustered the force and is going to come and crush them. But even in this narrative where we see this blend of a flicker of hope but an avalanche of fear, we have this kind of narrative hint that God's not done. Because up to this point in the narrative of all of the narrative of the Bible, the only time thus far that this word sand of the seashore has been uttered has been in conjunction with God doing something good. Genesis 22, God promises that Abraham's offspring will be like the sand of the seashore. Genesis 49, there's so much grain that God blesses Egypt with while Joseph is the leader. It's like the sand of the seashore. Joshua 11, when the, the people of Israel are coming into Canaan and there's, and there's enemies on every side, the enemies are like the sand of the seashore. And that's just when Yahweh shows up and defeats the enemy and delivers them. Now, I am not saying that that is exactly what the Bible is saying here. I'm not saying that because it says the Philistines were like the sand of the seashore, God is surely going to do something uh, destructive to them and, and redemptive for his people. But what I am saying is that when we read this, we can be reminded that God is good and that God is powerful. And God in his covenant relationship is bent to bless his people and preserve his people for himself. So even in the midst of this darkness and this fear, there is a glimmer of hope for God's people because Yahweh is good. And so when we read this, we need to know, you and I need to know just the way that the Israelites need to know, that hope is possible in a world filled with fear because God is good. You need to know that. You need to know that because I know your lives are like my life. I know that in your lives you have all these things that are weighing on you, that are pressing on you, that are worthy of your anxieties that you're afraid of. But I want to take a moment 
And I want to not dwell on that stuff. Because, again, one of the great accusations of our Reformed tradition is that we tend to be navel-gazing and we tend to reflect on the bad stuff. It's so easy to look out in the world and to say, yes, that's bad. Yes, that's terrible. What's happening in China with Christians is terrible. What's happening in Nigeria is terrible. What's happening in our government is terrible. But I want to just pause and I want to reflect on some of the really beautiful good things. Married people. Wives. Your husbands are a gift from God to you. Your husband is the precise man that God prepared for you from before the ages that said that is going to be your special partner with whom you are going to be covenantally knit. Husbands, your wives are a unique and precious gift to you that God providentially before the foundation of the world wove together in his providential plan that would be yours to be your helper, to be your helpmate, to be the one with whom you are covenanted. Single people, it is God's gift to you that you are single right now. It is God's gift to you because you have all the time in the world to dedicate to your studies, but more importantly, to His kingdom work. It is a gift and a good thing to be single. Children, it is a good thing. Your parents are here. They've brought you here. They love you. They care about you. They want to pass their faith on to you. That is a blessing. Think about something As silly as an onion or an orange. God, in his great delight, has given us all kinds of different foods with different textures and different tastes and different uh, flavor profiles that we get to eat and combine together to make stuff like tacos tonight for dinner. Think about the wonderful music that all kinds of different cultures have created throughout all the generations. We are a wonderfully creative, beautiful people. God gives good gifts to his people. And when we think about the good gifts that God gives us, we need to be reminded that hope is possible in a world full of fear because God is good. And those gifts are proof positive that he's there and he hasn't forgotten us. But in all of those things... All of the joy that those things can bring us, there's every bit of opportunity for pain. Wives, your husbands might hurt you. They might yell at you. They might neglect you. Husbands, your wives might hurt you. They might criticize you. They might neglect you. They, they, might, uh, they, they, they might spend too much of your money uh, shopping online. Uh, children, your parents, might, your, their parents might yell at you. They might not act kindly. And so when we see all of these good things, we know that even in a fallen world, the very best gifts that God gives us are still tinged with sadness and capable of, 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 great, of great destruction. So we need to keep in mind the right order in which we approach these gifts. Our hope cannot be in the gifts themselves. They have to be in the gift giver. And if we put our hope in the gifts themselves, we're always going to be left wanting and we're always going to want more and it's never going to be enough. And so when you want to be reminded of the good in the world, don't stop at the gifts and look past them to the gift giver and understand that because God is good, hope is possible in a world full of fear. One of my favorite quotes, it's the the thing that I said to my daughter, Piper, the first day that we left the hospital. I I said to her, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. And brothers and sisters, what we have here in this narrative is a narrative of beautiful and terrible things happening. Don't be afraid. God is good, and he's going to keep us. But even 
Though sometimes the good things that God gives us are difficult, including rebukes. So after verse 7, we get into verse 8, and we see that Saul waited for seven days at Gilgal, the time appointed by Samuel back in chapter 10, but Samuel didn't come. And Saul takes matters into his own hands. He sees his people scattering, and you don't want that if you're a king. You want people to stay united. So Saul says, bring me the sacrifice. Bring me the sacrifice, and and I'm going to offer it. And no sooner does Saul do that than Samuel shows up on the scene. And no sooner does Samuel show up on the scene than Saul goes out to meet him and begins to explain why he did what he did. I'm sure you can relate to that. You've been caught red-handed in something, and you scramble to say, this is why I was doing it. This was the situation. I I needed to do this thing. That's exactly what Saul is doing here in this moment. He's like, look, Samuel, you weren't here. The Philistines were there, and you weren't. We were scared. We needed the sacrifice. So I forced myself. I forced myself to do it. Took Took matters into his own hands. And Samuel offers this rebuke, you have done foolishly. Now, kids, this is a much less gross question. Uh, What's something silly that you've seen lately? Yeah, Anna. Your dad. (laughs) So in this Sunday, we've learned that dads are stinky and also silly. Yeah, Margaret. Daddy. (laughs) Sorry, Bob. Yeah, Elsie. Daddy, oh my gosh. Oh, Graham, what you got? Daddy, oh my gosh. I'll tell you what, I'd never do anything silly at my house, so, you know, whatever. Yeah, okay. So when Saul said, or when, when Samuel says to Saul, you have acted foolishly, he's not saying you're acting like Elsie's dad and being silly. He's not saying you're acting like Anna's dad and being silly. In the Bible, when we talk about fools, it says in Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. When we're talking about a fool in biblical language, we're talking about somebody that has done something not only intellectually wrong, but morally and spiritually wrong. And we see here that Saul is the king, and there's a level in which you think the king can do whatever he wants, but we know that Yahweh's king is not a king unto himself. Yahweh's king is a king unto Yahweh. And so Saul's great sin here is not that he committed the sacrifice as the king, it's that he did not listen to God's word through God's prophet Samuel. Samuel said he was going to do it. Saul took matters into his own hands. And took care of it himself. And in that sense, he was acting as if God was not there. Or at best, God was there and God did not matter. And so what we see here in this moment is a stinging rebuke. At the first sign of difficulty, he couldn't have the faith in God to keep the commandment of God's people. And so because of that, the terrifying verse 14 For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You were just made king. You had been doing so well. But guess what? You've acted foolishly. The Lord is taking this away from you. And God will find a man after his own heart. And so just as the kingdom promise gets taken away from Saul in judgment... In verse 15, so Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. 
Brothers and sisters, God's Word is this beautiful and terrifying mix of comfort and correction. Our, uh, our catechism says this, the reading but especially the preaching of the Word of God uh, is uh, um, for convincing and converting sinners, for building them up in holiness and comfort. So we believe that God's Word um, is true, and because it's true, it, it does it brings both a conviction of our sin, but a comfort unto the righteousness of God. And, and one of the things that I think you and I can both agree on is that sometimes obedience is difficult, and it doesn't feel good in the moment. Um, a lot of times, uh, in my own experience, and then when I've talked to other people, uh, I, I liken sin to like a train, and it's much easier to not move with the train if you're not on the train. But once the train gets going, it gets difficult to stop. So uh, remember for a moment in, in the recent times when you got on said train. Maybe you were in a fight with your spouse. And you couldn't help but just say mean things. Say horrible things. Do horrible things. And it just felt like you couldn't do anything but that. And it would have felt like the most painful, difficult thing in the world to stop. Or think about a time you were, you were on the computer. And you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing. You, were, you kept on buying things. You kept on making bets on BetMGM. You kept on watching one more, one more, one more YouTube video. You kept playing one more, one more, one more game. You kept watching one more, one more illicit video of things you should not have been watching. And you just couldn't stop. You said, one more, one more, and then I'll be done. One more purchase, one more click, one more word, one more something. And in that moment, when you're on that train rolling... Obedience feels like the furthest thing from your mind and the hardest thing in the world to get off that train, to stop it, and to get out of that. And I know that that's brutally, terribly painful and uncomfortable and difficult because I've been right there. But here's a truth that I promise you. God will never be dissatisfied with your obedience and your obedience will never be so painful as it is worth it when you are sitting before the face of God. And I know that because the Bible promises us both conviction but comfort. And the comfort that the Bible offers us is that when we are in those moments of extreme disobedience, of sinning against our God and the people we love the most in the world, we know that in those moments we have a forgiveness offered to us through our faithful Savior. We know that God, if we believe in Jesus, we know that in tenderness He came and sought us. He died for me while I was sinning, as we sang earlier. And so we know... That God's word gives us both this ruthless condemnation of sin. The Bible is completely clear that the wages of sin is death. When you sin against God, when you sin against your family, when you sin against other people, you are doing something wicked and despicable. But at the same time, we sang this earlier, before the throne my surety stands. And if you believe in Jesus and you have Yahweh, that covenant-keeping God on your side, you are not outside the forgiveness of God, no matter how far into the depths of sin that you fall. And so the Bible, at the same time, gives us this ruthless picture of our sin, but this wildly redemptive picture of God's grace that is afforded for us. And the other implication that, I have, that we have to wrestle with here, I think it's especially germane to us because we take communion every week. And that 
in the economy of God's people, we cannot divorce obedience from faith. We cannot divorce spiritual activity from faith. Saul did what he did that was not incorrect spiritual activity, but he did it outside of believing in the promises and the command of God. We cannot come to the table and think that it's just going to work just because we magically eat bread and drink wine. We cannot give money to the church and think that God is going to just bless that magically because we're doing that. We cannot um, pray and imagine that it's just going to magically work that because it does. When we do things not by faith, the Bible teaches us that that is sin. And so when we do anything, when we take communion, when we do any spiritual activity, we have to trust in Yahweh in faith and not in our activity of doing the thing. We are not Roman Catholic and we do not believe that things work ex opere operato. We don't believe that things work just because we do them. We believe that the sacraments work because it is done by faith in God. We believe that God hears our prayers, not because we're good people, but because we have a good Savior who is standing before the throne, interceding for us even now. Brothers and sisters, we cannot divorce our spiritual activity from a faith in a good God who comes to us in Christ. And so, when we consider all of that together, when we consider all of that together, it might feel like a heavy, heavy, dark picture for you. I don't have enough faith. I, 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 I don't wrestle with my sin. I just kind of sin because it's easier. I, I, don't, I don't want to stop sinning. I don't want to be obedient. I don't want to do the things that I'm supposed to do by faith. I don't want to believe in the goodness of God. And if you're in that scenario, you can feel so incredibly helpless. And I think that God in this narrative gives us a picture of what helplessness, helplessness looks like to give us the hope that God is still with us even in the midst of that. So we look at this final verses, the helpless situation. So after this stinging rebuke, Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and his, Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gabe of Benjamin. But the Philistines were there and camped at Michmash. What we see here in this situation is that God's people are numerically... Uh, positionally, numerically, and technically outmatched. Uh, Saul and his 600 men are encamped uh, at Gibeah, and we see three companies of Philistines go in different directions to different places, and I won't read the names again. But what you need to know about that is they're basically not completely surrounding them, but they're encamped in great many sides all around them, having some level of technical advantage. And at the same time, you know, Saul and his men are 600, and three companies of Philistines, that's 3,000 men most likely. And then you get this description uh, below the, the positional and the numerical description, and you see that there is no blacksmith in all of Israel. And that's not just a, a fun anecdote. That's the reality that, that Israel does not have the same caliber of weapons as the Philistines. In a sense, the picture that we get here is a, is a small group of horse-mounted cavalry that's about to fight against three companies of armored tanks. And if you thought about that, you know, in the context of something like World War I, you know that that's a recipe for absolute slaughter and disaster. And so what we see here is this absolutely helpless situation and picture of God's people. They are numerically outmatched, they are positionally outmatched, and they are hopelessly, technologically helpless. And so this narrative kind of gets to this point where it's this dark, bleak, terrible picture. And we ask the question, how... 
does God bring his man after his own heart out of this situation? I'm going to remind you and go back to the oubliette and tell you that the scariest part of the oubliette is not the darkness. It's not the rats that would come to visit you. It's not the dampness. It's not the cold. It's not the fact that you were potentially standing on human remains. It's the fact that you might stay there. See, oubliette comes from the French word oublier, which means to forget. And the biggest danger and the most insidious part of the oubliette was that somebody would be dropped down into this pit and then simply forgotten because they were down in the depths. They couldn't be heard. There was a, there was a cover over them. They wouldn't be seen. And that they would just stay down there and starve or descend into madness until they, they cracked and they died. The hope that we have in the gospel, dear ones, is that our God, who is covenant-keeping, gives hope to the helpless in that he does not forget his people. For his own namesake, our God does not remain. let us remain in these helpless situations. He said, I will make you a people for my own possession. I will make your, your offspring as numerous as the sands of the seashores. I will bless you with grain as abundant as the sea on the seashore. I will send to you a man after my own heart, a man who will deliver you. And we learn a few chapters later that that man is going to be King David. And David becomes the greatest king in the history of Israel. All the while Saul becomes even deeper and deeper in his descent into chaos and horror. But our hope is not in King David, a man after God's own heart. Our hope is in great David's even greater son. Because the picture that we have in the gospel is that our Lord Jesus condescended from on high and entered into the deep darkness of a fallen world, taking on the weak, frail form of humanity. And then lived a life perfectly obedient under the law of God. Was, was humiliated under the law and, and through the meanness of his life where he was poor. He was without uh, form. That he was um, rejected by men. Our Jesus endured this deep darkness of a fallen world. And then he went for our sake to the cross. And he endured the deep dark horror of the wrath of our God against all of our sin that we would ever commit against ourselves, against our loved ones, against people we don't know, and against a holy God. You see, on the cross, Jesus endured the, the death, uh, endure, endured the wrath of God unto death. We even confess that in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. He endured the deepest darkness of anything that our sin would earn, only to be raised up to the newness of life, so that in faith we might look to him and ourselves be lifted up out of the pit and depths and despair of our sin and set on solid ground so that we could be a people on display before the world for his splendor, knowing that there is a God who is there, a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who saves people surrounded by death, by putting death itself to death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, we can hope in a world that is full of darkness when we are full of fear because we know that our God has acted according to his covenant promises in the past. We know that he saved his people Israel. We know that he sent his son Jesus. And we know because he did those things, his covenant word is faithful, that he will come back and make all things new. So while you have something going on in your life right now that might feel overwhelming, it might feel like the deepest pits of darkness and despair, it might feel like the worst thing in the world, please know that you are indeed helpless to overcome that. 
but you worship and serve a God who gives hope even in the midst of the greatest darkness. Let's pray. Father, we know that you're good, that you're great, that you're glorious, and you meet us in the depths of our own despair. You meet us in the darkest pits of our own sin and rebellion, and you raise us up and say, you are mine, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. You raise us up that we might call on you as Abba Father. Lord, you are faithful to your covenant promises. You are faithful to your people because of your great name. Father, we pray that in this moment, you would give us an increased hope. As we approach your table, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, faith, nourish our souls, that we might hope with you. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.